Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig. I'm joined today by three of my colleagues. We have Dr. Eric Crampton, our chief economist, Dr. Bryce Wilkinson, senior researcher, and Matt Burgess, also senior researcher. And we are going to talk about the government's fee bait scheme. Good morning, guys. Good morning. morning. I think we were all pretty surprised yesterday at 11 o'clock to see a scheme back that was buried about two years ago. I think back then because of New Zealand First Resistance and also, I think, buried because there was a lot of evidence against it and a lot of advice from Treasury against it. And now the fee-bait scheme is back. Should we first perhaps define what a fee-bait scheme is and how it's meant to operate, Eric? Yeah, so the idea was that the government would be encouraging people to buy an EV by giving them some money back if they buy one. And they were going to try and fund the thing by taxing other vehicles, petrol vehicles, bad vehicles, bad vehicles driven by bad people that need to be paying tax to fund good people driving good vehicles. And initially this thing was panned in the treasury reports on it. They warned that there's very little evidence that the thing was going to work. That there was fiscal risk to the crown where the tax on bad people with bad cars might not be sufficient to fund good people with good cars and that the burden could then fall on the government more generally. And the treasury more specifically also warned that because transport is within the emissions trading scheme, it is really unlikely that this could actually help change net emissions because if there are fewer ETS credits bought in transport, well, they're just bought somewhere else, right? So in very simple terms, it is all about you know, getting people out of petrol cars and diesel cars and into EVs. And the bad people have to pay and the good people get a subsidy. What's wrong with that, Matt? Well, we have an emissions trading scheme that caps emissions. So uh, there was a, uh, it's pretty simple, isn't it? So uh, there was a tweet from the Greens yesterday saying 9.2 million tonnes of emissions avoided. Uh, completely untrue. 9.2 million uh, ETS emissions units uh, will be freed up from the transport sector to be um, purchased and surrendered by some other part of the economy. Uh, all this policy does is changes how and where emissions come down. Uh, it will reliably force emissions down through a relatively high cost channel, uh, the shift from petrol and diesel vehicles to EVs, um, and other much more affordable and effective emissions reduction sources. Maybe it's in agriculture, maybe it's, well not agriculture, excuse me, outside the ETS, but um, lots of other um, more affordable places than EVs to reduce emissions. They postpone their reductions uh, and the two completely offset zero overall effect on emissions. Uh, and the government uh, is completely aware of this. So the real winner of that policy will be industry that uses certificates and in the future they'll have to pay a lower price for them. The government's announcement yesterday on EVs has effectively granted a subsidy to uh, major emitters uh, in other sectors. There are further winners and losers, Bryce. I think this has a social component to it as well. I mean, people driving EVs, buying EVs are typically not um, lower income households. So what about these distributional effects? Yes, the, the, the policy seems to be very elitist. Uh, the announcement wasn't accompanied by any sort of public interest justification for what was being done. And of course it is people who, who can afford EV cars who tend to be buying them and that won't tend to be low-income people. People, the, the, the evidence is that low-income people do what you expect. They buy the cheaper cars and they tend to be the ones which are more petrol-intensive. They lower capital cost, higher running cost. 
So it's a reverse Robin Hood government. You tax the poor to give to the rich? Well, uh, yes, nearly all the time, by the sound of it. The housing policy, of course, is the, is the enormous one. It's government's presiding over massive increases in house prices. So open question to all of you guys. Is there anything in this policy announced yesterday that we would think makes any sense whatsoever? Well, there's no public interest justification for it that we've been able to see. Yeah, it's regressive. It, it doesn't cut emissions. Um, it, it will definitely make it harder to get to our emissions targets. It's actually, it's not, it's worse than useless, right? It's actually making it harder to get to uh, net zero emissions by 2050. Probably quite a lot harder, actually, because transport's a big sector and EVs at the moment anyway are actually a very expensive way to cut emissions. So we're talking big dollars here. It's probably worth going through some of the other arguments around it too, though, right? So in the Climate Change Commission's report, they reminded that the setting of the cap is endogenous. So what I mean by that... The, the Climate Commission will be looking through all of these kinds of policies when they set the next cap, and they could set a lower cap because these other policies are coming in. And they take this as justification for some of these kinds of policies that work outside of the ETS. It lets them reduce the cap faster. But the problem with that is the government can always reduce the cap faster even without the policy. If you do that, you find the next best ways of reducing net emissions if those wind up happening to be people taking up EVs rather than petrol vehicles, that's fantastic. But if it turns out to be something else, then the EV subsidies are certainly not going to be our most effective way of reducing net emissions, right? Because the ETS would find these other ways first. And eventually they'll get to EVs, but we're pretty far from that now. So the true cost of this policy then is the additional reductions that you could have had to the cap if you had ignored the policy, not had it, and just reduced the cap more quickly than you otherwise would have. And actually, the argument can go both ways, right? I mean, I think I think if I just can yeah. restate what you just said, the argument is that if you do other things outside the ETS, then you're effectively freeing up room or creating room to go harder on the ETS. And yep, that's ETS is the thing that decides, but these other things, it can actually go the other way, right? I mean, if you're if you're if your other policies, EV subsidies or mm -hmm. um, coal boiler retirement subsidies or whatever, if they're spending so much political and financial capital for each ton of emissions um, that they they burn, that they cut. Um, if you're burning political and financial capital at a high enough rate with those alternatives, you may actually be reducing the room for ETS uh, reductions, right? Well, sure, absolutely. Like, a government that was very serious about getting to net zero as effectively as possible and as quickly as possible, the first thing they'd be doing is implementing the carbon dividend. Mm -hmm. So they made, this is really infuriating, right? So the government has been behaving as though there are big political constraints against using the ETS because they're worried about increasing ETS prices. And that's not crazy. If you had substantial price increases facing poorer households, there could be political backlash that starts hindering the ETS. But the ETS raises a pile of money for the government, right? And that gives you a pool of money that can offset these equity effects, at least in the medium term, as the government is raising more money through the ETS because um, the prices are going up faster than quantities reducing. They're not doing that, and there, there's room to do it. The budget that came through just a month ago, or last month, had hypothecation of the ETS revenues. That means that all the money that the government gets when they auction credits is being put into one pot. They could take that pot, split it up five million ways, and give everybody a check at the start of the year based on expected ETS revenues. And people could use that to fund their own transition in the way that made most sense for them. For a lot of poorer households, it's not going to be getting an EV. It's going to be fixing your insulation or changing your heating plant, right? It's not... 
those are real things that people can do to reduce their costs and reduce their footprint as ETS prices rise. The EV subsidy pushes everything into one channel saying, well, th this is what we think is best for you and ignores all these other margins that people could have found for themselves by relying on the ETS and a carbon dividend. There seems to be a bit of a cognitive dissonance within the government. Climate change minister James Shaw actually just last week or a couple of weeks ago praised the ETS and said it has a cap and therefore the total amount of emissions is limited. It's actually set by law. Uh, now the same government, the same minister comes out and says, well, we'll reduce it anyway. So only one of these two statements can be true. So does James Shaw actually know what he's doing or is he willing to ignore parts of his own policy? If you go back and look, uh, James Shaw absolutely understands what he's doing. He's actually, you know, he's thoughtful. He's completely across the stuff. If you go back and look at Hansard and what what he said in um, his three speeches uh, to the amendment to the ETS last year that actually introduced this, this cap, which is the thing that's neutralising everything else, including EV subsidies, you know, Shaw walked through in a very simple and clear way just how the ETS works, why it actually fundamentally is very simple, very complicated in the detail, but the fundamental mechanism is, is actually very basic. He walked through how an ETS cuts emissions. It's You set a price and then everyone who can cut emissions for less cuts emissions and everyone who has to pay more to cut emissions will just pay the price. That's completely correct. A lot of people misunderstand that. Shaw absolutely understands that he's capped emissions and he hasn't said it, but I'm quite certain he also understands. He's certainly been told enough times um, by us and others um, that once you've capped emissions, you, other policies don't work. So, so why is he doing it? The answer has to be politics. Uh, in the end, he's got a voter base that absolutely demands EV subsidies and coal boiler, you know, getting rid of coal and all these things, regardless of whether it um, uh, changes emissions. Fundamentally, I think the political market here isn't actually um, tied to whether emissions come down or not. It's to opposing or supporting particular technologies. Uh, that has become the proxy. That's become Those proxies have be actually become completely divorced from the question of whether emissions come down or not. Even if the intent is good that we want to help the climate, it's become codified in this EVs good, coal bad type logic um, that's that's got us to where we are in a world of hard bans that actually don't make sense or actually massively counterproductive, make it harder to, to get the job done. And now we have having sort of these positions on particular technologies, technologies having ossified, there's just an unwillingness to go back and, and ask the question, uh, are we in a position, are the set of things we're doing actually helping or not? Um, because that challenges the, the ossified position. So, uh, but look, I have to say, I think this, you know, I think this argument that the ETS caps emissions, other things can't, we've been saying it for years, I think it's actually getting traction. I think, you know, you've got one minister who was pushing two contradictory positions. If it was David Parker saying, pushing the EV subsidy at the same time as Shaw was saying, we've capped emissions, then you can sort of, um, it's easier to get away with it. But it's Shaw with both positions now. And so I think he has to be, you know, we're talking tens of billions of dollars of policies that are about to land by the end of this year when the government tables its, its emissions reduction plan. Before then, we absolutely have to challenge the government to, to explain how these policies cut emissions. It's just a bit difficult, actually. I watched the um, six o'clock news on uh, News Hub last night. The EV scheme was the lead story. The first two minutes of the broadcast um, was all about that, and they didn't mention the ETS once. So the first um, two statements were from people in the street saying, oh, this is great because it makes an EV more affordable. Isn't that a wonderful policy? About a minute later, into the same uh, report, um, other people said, oh, but I don't want to pay a tax. 
None of them mentioned the ETS. None of them mentioned um, what it will do to emissions. And so the public probably doesn't quite understand yet what's going on. The challenge for the government is very simple. Government, your policy is that the emissions trading scheme caps emissions. You can only cap emissions once. Therefore, government, how does this other scheme, uh, electric vehicle subsidy, which is completely within that cap, how does that cut emissions if you've got this thing over here called the ETS that's already capped emissions? A cap, what's a cap? It means that one less emissions in some part of the economy must mean one more uh, elsewhere in the economy. That's what a cap is. But their cheap answer will be, oh, well, it lets us cut the cap faster, and they will fail to answer the next question, like, why didn't you just cut the cap by a little bit faster anyway without the policy so we could get there at lower cost? Well, that... Actually, the, the government's position, and by the way, the government's position on this is co quite correct. Uh, the position, I think, is that they're aligning the, the emissions trading scheme cap is going to come down in line with the targets, emissions targets that we've set. That's, that's exactly the right thing to do. Well, if you've put a, a line, um, whether it's straight or slightly kinked somewhere along the way, between where we are on emissions and where we need to be, well, then you've pretty much ruled out um, moving that line up or down according to policy by policy. If that's the government's answer, it's actually incorrect because they haven't given effect to it. They haven't actually, um, when they introduce each of these new policies, it doesn't come with a new commitment to reduce the cap each time. Well, well, by sure. the way, it's not just something that we've been saying. It's something, just to remind, that the IPCC has been saying for a while, that other international bodies have been saying that you cannot logically combine an ETS with a cap um, with other measures. It's a completely well-understood um, uh, byproduct of a, of a cap and trade scheme. So actually we're going against the advice of the top global body on climate change. Uh, and and I think most economists probably who have looked seriously at, at climate economics. So that's one way in which this policy goes against advice. The other way, Eric, I think is it is also going against advice from Treasury on the distributional effects. Yeah, Treasury wasn't a fan of this thing when it was proposed last time around. You can get the cabinet papers. I'd OIA'd them. They'll be publicly available on Treasury's website. They're, they weren't fans. They said it wasn't going to work. So I think the government's been told actually on the two major aspects of this policy, on the distributional effects and on the climate change emissions effects, that this policy doesn't work, and yet they announced the scheme yesterday. Yeah, we have this disconnect between the government's rhetoric on climate change. It's It's generation's nuclear free moment, it's existential, it's a crisis, it's an emergency, in fact, Parliament declared that last year. Uh, but then here we have a sequence of policies that um, not only won't uh, contribute towards uh, our emissions targets, actually detract from them, make it harder to get there. So the government has to be held to account for this um, disconnect. And we, you know, again, we're talking tens of billions of dollars of policy. There has to be a reckoning at some point fairly soon, I think, on just walking us through step by step with maths, if that's what it takes, under what conditions does an electric vehicle subsidy or whatever else the government's doing under the ETS, under what conditions does that actually lead to less emissions uh, and movement towards our target, rather than just making us poorer uh, and therefore putting our targets at risk. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's one point I'd like to follow up on, just on, on what Eric said, that um, maybe the government's trying to justify these supplementary measures on the basis that the ETS price would be um, high enough to be politically embarrassing if the ETS was done alone. And the point which seems to be incoherent in that argument to me is that the Climate Change Commission's report showed that um, $50 a, a tonne of CO2 equivalent emitted should be close enough to doing the job. And yet its proposed pathway instead talks about a price above 
of up to $250 a tonne. So how how can that loop be squared? If, um, why go for, for policies which are up to five times more expensive at the margin than the ETS, which on the Commission's own calculations would do the job? Well, it's way more, of course, for the scheme announced yesterday because the price is infinite. We're not cutting any tons whatsoever at a price of several hundred million dollars. Yes, yeah, it's bizarre. But uh, well, just to follow, I mean, if you don't mind me jumping in, I mean, I think the answer is, look, yeah, we've got the Commission saying we can get to our target for 50 bucks a tonne. Instead, we should pay a lot more. Uh, and uh, ultimately, the thing that's going on here, the difference between current policies and 50 bucks that gets us to net zero and the Commission's plan or the government's set of policies that gets us to net zero, but at a far higher cost, the difference is between those two things is that we get to net zero with a different set of technologies. So the problem that the government is addressing with its policies, yesterday's EV subsidy, is that it's just changing the way we cut emissions. We get the same reduction in emissions, but we just use different technologies to do it. Now that actually, if you think about it, has nothing to do with climate change. Emissions come down by the same amount. It's just the privilege of cutting each tonne of emissions with an electric vehicle instead of with whatever the ETS would have picked. Um, probably not EVs, at least for now. That Those will come later as costs come down, but right now the ETS isn't going to pick EVs. It will... Um, it will plant trees, it will cut, um, it will encourage conversions from coal to gas where that's possible, it will shift um, other technologies onto electric, but just not EVs. Um, but actually from a climate change perspective, it's completely arbitrary whether a tonne of emissions is cut by an EV or a tree or a, um, less coal at, at an um, electricity generator or whatever. This whole program is all about a taste for different technologies with no actual change uh, for the climate. So we sh the government should be clear that's what it's doing. It's just changing the mix. Another fun aspect of all of this is the tax incidence question. I mean, who will actually receive the subsidy and who will pay the tax? Yeah, we've we already gone through that, right? At least one, in this version of it, compared to the prior one, they'll be paying the subsidy on imports as they come in for used vehicles. So a used hybrid or a used EV will draw a minor amount of subsidy, which they didn't have before. So it'll be a little less regressive than it otherwise might have been. But still, it's winter picking on tech. It's not going to do anything to reduce emissions. There are better ways of addressing equity concerns, like like having a carbon dividend. And some of that subsidy might actually be captured by Elon Musk directly. Well, people buy Teslas, but there's he's got shareholders, and presumably Toyota has shareholders as well, and all of the other EV companies have shareholders, so it's hard to figure out quite where that all lands. Some of it will be in people's KiwiSaver accounts, right? So just to bring this discussion to a conclusion, then let's talk about something completely different, and that's shower heads. I think there was an, a moment in the last few years of the Clark government when the government probably exaggerated um, its activism a bit too much and tried to regulate shower heads. Could this be this government's showerheads moment when people realize, actually, we've never understood the ETS, but we understand a tax on a new car? Most people will still see it not really hitting them. There, are, The larger utes are still popular, but I'm not sure if they're as popular among uh, Labour's core constituency. I generally expect that Labour knows what they're doing in this. They are polling more than anybody else. They've got the war chest for lots of political polling. I expect they are betting that most people fundamentally don't understand the ETS, that they don't appreciate the distributed actions that happen invisibly through the ETS as everybody adjusts to rising prices. And they are betting that the only thing that 
their constituents will see as mattering are these kinds of heavy-handed moves that actually don't do anything given the ETS, but give visibility to doing something. So that's their bet, and their polling is better than mine. We don't do any polling, so I'm not going to second-guess that. Like, I hope that you're right, because I would very much like there to be accountability for the effects of legislation, not just here, but more broadly. But they're betting against it, and I don't know they're wrong. So Bryce, you're the most experienced economist here in our team. From your experience, what would have to happen until people finally understand the ETS and what it does to them? Uh, when the cost hits their pockets, um, I think would be would be the critical thing, and that's what the government's trying to hide from people, I guess, with these supplementary measures, rather than have the price come out in the ETS. Matt, I think um, the price. The effect on the back pocket can be calculated relatively easy. The carbon content of, of a litre of milk, of um, certainly a litre of petrol, uh, the cost of electricity, all of that um, is well understood. And so when we finally get the uh, full models and data out of the Climate Change Commission... Oh, we're still waiting for them, right? We're still waiting for them. Uh, I think we're going to see carbon prices... I think there's some carbon prices in there that haven't been reported in the final report that could, if it's anything uh, like the draft report, go as high as $800. So we can then convert, do what the Climate Change Commission and the government should have done, uh, but haven't so far, which is to turn that into what this means for households. Uh, how much more are you going to pay for a litre of milk? Uh, it's going to be, I think, staggering. $800 a tonne's a lot. It's going to have a big impact on cost of living. We can reveal that clearly, and we can pair that with an argument that it's completely unnecessary. The Commission itself says we could do it for a tenth, a twentieth uh, of the cost, uh, and it's up to the government to then explain to households why it's in their interest to pay so much more to achieve the same emissions goal. So we look forward to seeing all of these calculations. But for now, thank you to Matt Burgess, Bryce Wilkinson, Eric Crampton, and thank you all for listening. That's it for now. Thank you. Thank you.